0: Most of us retire around, we hope to retire around 62 or 65. Chances are you're going to live another 25 years after that. Okay, let's just use round numbers. If you live on $100,000 today and you spend $100,000 today, how much money do you need today to retire to be able to afford your life, the rest of your life? $2.5 million. So $100,000 a year. Well, there's a darn thing called inflation and so 2.5 million really doesn't get you another 25 years because inflation eats that crap up
1: welcome to the waste no day podcast a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing heating air conditioning and electrical more than a podcast waste no day is a credo a determination a mindset it is a never-ending discipline It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. Your hosts, Nate and Brian, are hanging out with you, and we have a great two-part episode headed your way. This one's going to be part one of Mr. Mike Brewer talking about his journey from two trucks to the largest plumbing company in the state of Arizona. Wow. We have a lot of stuff to cover with him, and we are excited to do so, but first we're going to spend a few minutes just breaking down the ideas for ourselves.
2: If a tree's strength is judged while it is still a seed, it is mistaken as weak. Ita Wu
1: kudos on the name. I would have yeah. totally botched that. I actually
2: got, I looked up how to pronounce, how to pronounce this dude's name and it was there. It showed up well on done. his wiki,
1: Wikipedia. Well done. Yeah. It I is. don't think Nate Minnick has a, a pronunciation. <laughs> I don't. On Wikipedia. Yeah. Google didn't get that far yet. It's fine. It's fine. We'll get there someday. But, uh, in the meantime, a great quote and very true, right? Why,
2: yeah. Why do I go with that quote? For one, take them back to the nineties and shoot, take them back to 2008. Cause the, I know, uh, Mike's organization is a large part new construction plumbing, and he got shellacked in 2008 in the, the recession. Um, so if you had judged the strength of his organization in 08, you would have come up with a seed, but that didn't stop him, barely slowed him down. I mean, just a few years later, he was the, and we'll go into that story, of course, but he, he had a tree in mind that whole time. And a lot of our audience um, that is not a technician is an owner or manager of a small organization. So I like to, I kind of wanted to give them some, just give them a shout out with that quote to say one man operations. We have a ton of those that listen to this show and, and they're probably, I would say the, the people who hit us up the most are the small one to two man, uh, shop owners looking for advice and just, telling us what they liked about an episode or what they'd like to hear in another episode and just to just to hype you guys up a little bit the the seed the tree thing um, don't let it get you down when when things are going sideways it, like our this episode and our last episode Aaron Hagan um, they started as you know one and two truck organizations worked their way up into very big and both got hit hard and went way backwards. I mean, Aaron Hagan went to zero techs at one point. And then, you know, a few years later is pushing 25 million. Mike Brewer went down to almost only a small service company. Um, and then a few years later did 78 million in revenue. So the measurement is going to be taken when you're a tree, not when you're a seed.
1: You know, Brian, one of the things that is frankly frustrating about trees plants in general is the slow growth that is nearly unobservable without the perspective of time one thing that i appreciate that we do around here uh, through the eos model or traction as we have talked about it in previous episodes and will continue in the future is uh, we set a three-year picture every, I guess we do it every three years, every two years, something like that, where we're setting a date in the future and we're forecasting out, you know, what does 2025 look like? What do we think our company is going to be doing? How many people are going to be working and, and how much revenue are we producing? But then even more grandiose than that, like the, the real feel stuff, like What new programs are are we going to have and what new options are going to be there and what new technology is going to be involved and what are our logistics going to be like and all these things that make you dream big. And if you do that process long enough, eventually you get past that three-year point and you get to reflect back upon where you were three years ago and see how many of those dreams have come true. And we just did that not too long ago with our next level leaders. And it was amazing to see how many things that we had projected three years ago that we wanted, that we saw, that we dreamed of, that we aspired to had finally come true. Many of them had come true long before the three-year window. And yet, if you don't have that perspective of time to be able to go back and look at a snapshot three years ago and say, this is who we want to be and now this is who we are and how we've accomplished that, it gets lost and you're stuck watching a plant grow and you don't get to see very much of it. And so one thing I want to encourage you is like reflect back upon where you've come from. Reflect back upon who you were one year ago, three years ago, five years ago, and visualize all the growth that you've invested into yourself, your company, those around you and where it is, where it has taken you. You know, think about the, I used to be like this type sentences, and now I'm like this. That's real recognized growth that you don't see until you realize, wait a minute, that seed is now a three foot tall tree. That three foot tall tree is now a small cedar. And it's the beauty of growth over time that we don't recognize that finally turns into something beautiful. But if we're not careful and we don't pause ourselves to look back, we can miss it. And that's something and, and concept that we want to dive into here with Mike as we bring him on. For the first part of this episode, we're going to invite Mike Brewer into your passenger seat. Our guest today is Michael Brewer. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Brewer Companies and senior advisor to Synergos Companies. Mike brings 44 years of experience in the plumbing industry as a chief executive officer for the Brewer Companies, a family business that provides plumbing services to retail, residential, new construction, and commercial markets. He has held the role of strategist and visionary for the overall enterprise since its inception. He led and constituted a strategy to become the largest residential plumbing contractor in the state of Arizona right through the Great Recession. Not only did Brewer Enterprise Incorporated survive, but organically grew its revenue from $6.4 million in 2009 to $80 million in 2021. Growing market share in the Phoenix and Tucson market, all the while going through the toughest economic, economic times of our lifetime. He opened the first Benjamin Franklin plumbing service and repair retail franchise in Arizona in 2003 and provides the commercial market strain and service needs with Brewer Commercial Services since 2007. Having sold his ownership interest in the fall of 21, he also currently holds the role of senior advisor to the CEO of Synergo's Companies, a company of trade leaders who build efficiency into every project. He is a lifelong learner, problem solver, inventor, and holds two patents on a plumbing test device for the industry. Mike has lived in Arizona since 1968 and is married with six children, four of those working within the business. Welcome to the show, Mike.
0: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to talk to you
2: again, Mike. We we, well, this is our second episode in a row of people that I was fortunate enough to hang out with in Myrtle Beach a few weeks ago. Uh, we had we had Aaron Hagen on last week, and uh, yeah, we had a great time. You, uh, your wife Patricia, and my wife Amelia, and we got to sit and have a nice, what was that Rios Steakhouse, Rios Brazilian, or something like that?
0: Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah,
2: it was one of the, it's one of those uh, I forget what you call it. One of those spots where if you you turn your your coaster over to the green side and they walk over with, you know, chop up the filet mignon or whatever, you turn it red and they stop. Mine never. So it's
0: one of those places you eat too much. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Mine never went green, but they did stop bringing the food, or it never went red, but they did stop bringing the food out eventually.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Mike, we wanted to have you on today because yours is a, a, a story that everybody can get there uh, excitement levels up about, and that is growing through the trades and specifically growing from a small operation to a massive one and all the steps in between. So we wanted to invite you on here to kind of talk to us about that journey. And of course that journey starts way back in the day. So if you would be so kind as to bring us kind of, um, tell us a little bit about your history, where you come from and how you got into the business. And then we'll start from there with the two man operation.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, so I moved to Arizona, I guess, when I in 1968. I was in third grade, but I um, have to live on the street. that A neighbor of mine was a plumbing contractor. And so in 78, I graduated high school. I actually worked for him. His son and I were the same age, but he's a year behind me in school. And uh, so we hung out together. We did a lot of things together. But when we were in our mid-teens, whatever, I think probably sophomore junior year, started working for him summers and then after school just for you know gas money back when twenty five dollars got you a lot of gas. Um but really it was gas money for my car, maybe insurance I guess. And uh graduated in seventy eight and decided you know, I decided over my senior year that hey, I want to get on with life and go earn a living and you know, I, I looked at him and what he had accomplished and he was a wealthy individual and, and so I went to work for him as a small shop actually even when I worked for him. But um took about a week off between high school and career and launched and um, went full-time for him. And probably about three or four months after I was out in the field, he stepped completely out of the field, um, although he wasn't out there full-time anyway. But worked for him for about, well, I guess I worked for him a total 11 years. Um, about year five or six, they uh, his son decided he didn't, didn't appreciate working out in the field and working for a plumbing contracting company. And so he chose to go a different direction. Um, for me, it was, you know, my career is where I made, made a living and took care of my family. And, and so fast forward about another five years, I guess. And, and, uh, Gary was the owner's name and Gary came to me and said, Hey, you know, you and my son originally were going to take this thing over, but he's not interested. I'm done. Um, it was in 89 actually the fall or I guess summer of 89 and um, basically said, you know, I'm going to either shut this thing down unless you want an opportunity to, you know, carry it on and purchase it from me. And so I said, you know, like any good trade guys. Yeah, absolutely. I want to buy it. Not having a clue what that meant. Um, ended up, we made a decision and it effectively, I think it cost me $15,000 cash. And then I picked up about $17,000 in supply house bills that he owed. And so effective January 1st of 1990, we went into business um, that fall. What I did do was go get a little education. I was always a numbers guy, uh, but I went to community college, took some night classes on accounting um, and basically formalized my accounting um, understanding of the accounting and books and that type thing somewhat.
1: And Mike, uh, one of the, At that time, how many employees are in the company?
0: So while he owned it, there were four of us in the field at the end, uh, and one girl in the office. And then January 1st, the day I took it over, there was myself and one guy in the field working four days a week. (laughs) And so that's how much cost he was carrying. Obviously, he had made a lot of money, so it wasn't a big deal to him. It just was a matter of it was in a recession and, and the downturn in the housing industry here in Phoenix. And he just made a decision that he just didn't need to do and mess with it anymore. Sure. So, um, you know, he carried quite a, In fact, that was one of the questions. I said, hey, the other two guys, um, older guys, what are they going to do? And he said, I've already talked to them. They're going to retire the day you take it over. Wow. So they were all set. They were done with their careers, basically, and the life was good for them. Um, so anyway, we, we started up in January of 1990. It was me and one guy. His name was Dave. Um, he still holds a vital role in the company, even after... Where we sit today as we speak, um, he's in charge of quality control for the business, which is a critically important part of it in our model. And um, you know, we've been together for jeez, oh, seems like forever, but I guess 35 years because I hired him about three years prior to the deal, prior to me, the other guy shutting down and me taking over. So he was my right hand guy the day the day we opened the doors. And uh, but anyway, so. You know, owned the company and off we went and uh, had no idea how to run a business. I knew how to run the field and i was a really good technician. And at the time, by the way, so this is what we're talking about, is 100% new construction. Um, it was primarily probably 90% residential. We had a few guys that were GCs that we'd do some commercial work for, but it was really track housing. Um, so kind of my background and my first love is, that single family residential track housing Um, and this is specifically plumbing only plumbing only. Absolutely. Um, and so anyway, we ran through, um, you know, I remember the first phone call I got from the builder I was working for, because I was only working for one builder when we first started. Um, and he said, Hey, I got another subdivision. I need you to bid. And I thought to myself, well, okay. You know, I said, okay, I'll come by and get the plans back in the day when you actually had to go pick up a roll of plans. Um, and so I did that, brought them home and said, now what? I'd never bid anything in my life. And so, kind of unique, I, you know, I didn't know any other way, so I just rolled them out, I got a ruler, I kind of drew out where I was gonna plumb this thing at, and I started counting fittings and going, hey, every quarter inch of a foot, and that's how much pipe I need. And uh, so I developed this strategy called nut and bolt it, to where I literally, as I put a bid together all the way down to the washers that hold the toilet to the floor. <laughs> I mean, every little part and very time consuming, but anyway, that was a part of my learning over the years. Um, we had our ups and downs, um, uh, went through a divorce probably, well, I'd say probably about seven, eight years into owning the company. We were a fairly small player here in Phoenix. And, um, and, you know, once I'd had my kids at that point, um, another kind of unique about me is I have, uh, Today, they're 31 years old, but quadruplets, three sons and a daughter. And so oh. that was all part of my life back then. And, three, uh, three
2: sons and a daughter, quadruplets.
0: Yep. God, God bless you, so man. That, <laughs> and the funny part, I guess the funny, um, the challenging part of that was I went into business in 1990 and they were born in March of 1991. So. It was brutal. Um, two-man shop. That was when I hired my first, quote-unquote, second employee, I guess, but the first hire as a new company. Um, it was a kid right out of high school that uh, I just needed another set of hands in the field so that I could run and help with the kids a couple of times a day when we needed to feed them. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of family to help with that. So that's a whole different story we don't need to get into. But nonetheless, I had a lot of, a lot of stresses around trying to you know, do a startup business, so to speak. Yeah. That brings, that brings family. new
1: meaning to 24 uh, seven on call right there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well let's put it this way. We never got more than two and a half hours of sleep for months oh. because every, we fed them every four hours and it took a little while to feed them and it took a little while to get ready to feed them. Right. Wow. But anyhow, um, that's a little bit, you know, as I said, you know, unfortunately we wound up in a divorce situation. Um, I ended up what I what was important to me was autonomy and be able to do whatever I needed to do in my future. And so I ended up purchasing my small business at the time from my ex as part of the agreement. Um, and you know, off we went. And so we went through some ups and downs again. I, I guess overall probably outside of 2009 when I probably should have been out of business, 2008 and nine, the crash. Um, backing up early on. I don't know, I was probably in business four or five years and and got myself in trouble and effectively was upside down about a quarter million dollars. Um, I had a supplier that believed in me and I was very transparent with them. Um, didn't know how it happened. I wasn't living out of my company. I actually set my company up to begin with as a C Corp. So I would get a paycheck. I was pretty naive and I just knew that an LLC was like it was your own bank account and you could do what you wanted with it. Um, technically, you can't with a C-corp, but it was a specific entity that paid me a paycheck. So I got a paycheck every week um, that was the same, and that's what I lived on. And so that was helpful when I did get in trouble because the whole seller could look at the books and understand I wasn't, I wasn't raping business, so to speak, or right. doing something that I shouldn't be to have an extravagant lifestyle. I just had some foundational problems that I didn't know, and I was going down that hard knocks path, you know, the school of hard knocks that I'll I'll speculate most of us contractors um were pretty hard headed, but most of us have gone down that road and uh you know learn on the job so to speak. So we recovered from that first downturn, um, self imposed and you know, as the tried to grow a business, we changed our model, um, went to a just in time delivery model. Um at the time, we were probably building four or 500 houses a year and just in the Phoenix West Valley market. Um, again, as we moved on, um, the new model allowed us to grow fairly quickly and not a lot of capital investment. And you know, our wholesalers, basically, we gave them a list. They put it in a box and delivered to a job site. And my manpower showed up and did an install that day. And so very little cost and inventory, um, effectively had no inventory because it, it was just the cost of goods sold. Um, they delivered it, we installed it, I built it. And so, you know, I learned a lot over the years. Um, gosh, now that I'm even thinking back that far, it's crazy how things went. Um, but, hey you know, I just paused because of the, the, just the many thoughts running through my head and what, you know, what's relevant um In this situation, I guess I'll jump forward to 2004, 5, and 6 when Phoenix had a boom. They built actually um, probably four years worth of product in three years, normal to the market. We grew a little bit through that time, but there was probably 40 or so, you know, plumbing contractors that actually participated. I was on the small scale of that, small side, maybe three, four percent of the market, um, and the market was. You know, in 2006, I think we closed 60,000 houses. Um, so I was a very small player in a big, big bowl. Um, but what happened in 2007, or six and seven, as a slowdown hit prior to the banking meltdown in 2008, um, some of the big shops could not cut overheads fast enough. And so some of them went out of business. And what became painful for them became an opportunity for me. And because we could actually hire people and the contractors, the builders we worked for, they all wanted us to, to move to the other side of town. And we were never able to do that prior to this moment in time, because we were really good at what we did in the small area that we, the geography that we operated in and where they wanted us to branch out. You know, it's like I told them, I can't hire anybody. So now I do a lousy job on the other side of town and a lousy job on the side of town. We do an awesome job in right now. So we just, I was pretty adamant about we weren't going to do that, but when people became available, then all of a sudden it opened those doors, and so we did expand across the valley. Um, at the same time, we also expanded into the Tucson market. We had a one of our builders wanted us to go down there, and so we did that. And that was really more of an experiment than hey, what an opportunity. Um, over time, so I like most subcontractors, especially startups, I was on. I can't even remember which. Product it was is either Peachtree or QuickBooks. It cost about two hundred bucks for a version you threw on a you know two eighty six laptop back in the day when forty megabyte it was a big hard drive. <laughs> um, but the uh, we were operating, and over the years I got to where you know we were operating on about three or four different pieces of software. And one of the big things that that I think made us who we were here at the end and makes us who we are today is our commitment to technology. I think as an industry as a whole, just as an aside, um, maybe we can swing back to it, but the, the adoption of technology in the trades is very, very low. I think the service side does a better job of it, just because it's the way calls are run is critically important to have an information at hand. Um, but on the new construction side, um, especially the new single-family residential side, It's very old school, very paper, pad of paper driven, um, not a lot of adoption of technology. And so over time, when I decided, hey, I need to be in, try to consolidate this into one platform. And I went on a big search for what is that platform. And I'm, I mean, everybody came in front of me from Mass 90 to Mass 400 to Builder Pro. um, Gosh, I can't even tell you that probably six or eight of them. And every one of them had a great accounting system, but so did QuickBooks. I'll just use QuickBooks as my example. Um, that's not what I was after. I was after job costing. I was after being able to build a bid, um, you know, re- scheduling, quality control, all these different things that these accounting programs, quote unquote, they had some bolt ons, but they were more for bigger industry stuff, like commercial stuff, and they were super expensive. And so I got an introduction to a gentleman um, by one of those guys that pitched me on one of the big products. And he asked me, hey, have you ever met? I'll just use the name Bill. And I said, no. And so anyway, he made an introduction. He actually came to his presentation. So he probably got a little kickback. But as the guy went down the path showing me the software, um, you know, projector on the wall in a meeting room. <laughs> but basically you know, about 10 minutes into it, I'm trying to think to myself, I wonder how much this costs and how am I going to afford it? Because it was the best thing out there that I'd seen so far. And, um, anyway, ultimately bought that. Um, as he made the transition, we took about five weeks, probably to transition all the records and be ready to go live in our new fiscal year. Um, as he was doing all that, he brought up something that said, you know, because his what he didn't have was a scheduling system inside his product. Um, and so he mentioned that yeah, someday he'd like to do that. And I said, well, how would that work? And he told me, that. so we were talking about RDP or you know dial in, if you will, pre-internet, quote unquote, the way we hold the internet today. Um, so nothing cloud-based, you would dial right into your server on site. And so if the guys were in the field and they could pop up a little laptop or something and see, could dial into our server, they could see what was scheduled for tomorrow and they could ride by and see if it was ready. And I thought, well, that would be awesome. And so anyway, I kicked that around, and long term, over time, probably six or eight months later, um, three day weekend, I happened to be in town. We typically go camping, but took some paperwork home with or just paper, big eleven by seventeen. And I started scribbling some stuff out. So from that came a piece of software that effectively made us or helped us become who we were today on the new construction side, but. Anyway, that was just another kind of a, a side, but a growth mode and the adoption of technology and how that allowed us to do things. Again, I'll, I'll you know, if you want to circle back and question into it later, effectively what it ultimately became, um, so you one might mean, I guess one could imagine, um, you know, we did 7,800 houses last year between Phoenix and Tucson. Every one of those houses, if you just had your normal phases, had three phases, let's say there's 8,000 houses, you go do three phases, underground, top out, and trim, that's 24,000 stops, plus quality, plus pull down on inspections. Um, Some of those are gas houses, so that's an extra phase. So somewhere probably around 35 to 40,000 specific phases or stops, and it's humanly impossible to do on paper. so without a piece of software to be able to manage that, would have been impossible to grow and be the size we are. Um, I know other people do it; they do it with other pieces of software. And just you know, i have always been a, a big admirer of people that can pull off growing a big business. Um, but anyhow, so back to kind of the story, just to get us where we are. Um, ended up remarried, as I you know mentioned. I have two stepsons. Uh, my wife and I are remarried. We've been together. I think it's 18 years. We got married nine years ago this November. Um, the So growing a new relationship, new family, all that kind of thing, and then having a business. And so over the years, I had kind of transitioned, um, handed off the roles. And so Dave, who I mentioned was my right-hand guy when I started all this, um, he wound up, president uh well let me back up i guess actually before all that before 2008 back in 2003 i got introduced um so we were strictly new construction up to that point in time and in 2003 i got a little mailer in the mail saying hey come learn to be a service plumber you know contractor but we'd always talked about you know someday we'll have to open up a service division because we just keep building these houses and under the old you know what we typically do, our state rules are we're, we hold the warranty on the house for two years after close. And so that's all a warranty period. But once they're out of warranty, if they call, it's like, yeah, we don't do that. Call someone that does that. But we kept getting more and more calls as we had more and more houses that, you know, beyond that. And so when I got this cold call flyer in the mailbox, I decided, well, yeah, I'll go down and see what they've got. It's, understand it but they talked about learn to be a service contractor and I had no idea what that meant. So I went down and uh went downtown to a hotel here in Phoenix and ended up meeting a lady by the name of Ellen Rohr. And so anyone in the trades knows who Ellen Rohr is and then the one side of, at least.
2: One of the godfathers of Benjamin for godmother I guess of Benjamin Franklin.
0: Yep, Clockwork Home Services. And uh so she there were supposed to be 12 of us there. Two of us showed up. And I mean, obviously she was probably disappointed, but she, she acted as other 40 people in the room and she pitched us and she pitched us on all the, um, all the benefits you get by being a franchisee and inside the Ben Franklin system. And so from my perspective, um, you know, I sat and listened and, we were coming up on the two hour mark and it's like, okay, I didn't realize this is actually a sales pitch. That's how naive I was. It was going to be come learn to be a service contractor is what I showed up for. Um, and it sounds like a really great offer, but it's probably more expensive than I want to spend to get out of here. And, and, uh, so, you know, I'm sitting there saying, Hey, I got things to do, get to the punchline. You know, what's it cost? And so she did her, you know, recap if you will and you get all that for ten thousand dollars it's like I sat there thinking crap I' pissed away 10 grand with no upside probably more than once in my life maybe I ought to pay attention to this so I ended up leaving that day with a a um, you know full set of paperwork on what what it meant to be a franchisee inside the system um, you know she sent me away it just so happened what this whole thing was was the existing franchisees were all headed to Phoenix for their winter um, convention and so the day before that convention is when she held this event to pitch us and actually it was two days before so I took it home that night read through the whole thing had my yellow pad of paper you know rough, the trusty old legal pad and wrote down all my questions and we got back together for dinner and again those of you that know Ellen she's a pretty strategic person so I went down to have dinner with her and we sat down in the you know, the hotel bar right there and just happened to be right inside the lobby where you come check in. So as we sat there going over my questions. Most of the franchise franchisees showed up over those, or at least several of them did. And of course they all saw Alan and they all came over and, you know, it was all a good time and she introduced me to him and, uh, you know, it seemed like a great, big, happy family. And so, you know, again, she's being strategic and, and, uh, you know, wanted to get things done. And so I said, you know, this is great. Appreciate you answering my questions. You'll yeah, be in touch. Well, off I went, I thought about it. I went and talked to my accountant slash consultant, um, was very close with me. Uh, and we talked about it. And, you know, his, his comment was, you know, when is she coming back? Cause I'd love to, ask her some questions myself so we set up a meeting she flew back in actually um, I guess that was in September that first meeting because she flew back in the Wednesday before Thanksgiving which I thought was ridiculous but she's pretty committed to her role and her job there and so she flew in for the day we ran around uh, one of the things is a franchisee you know you have to look at your building and is it acceptable like where you do business from and so we ran over to my office and did all that, and she loved, you know, the whole setup and what we were doing, and and you know we were legit. And uh, I think what she really loved was, hey, we had a database of existing homes that we could market to. Um, we talked a little bit about that, and then we wound up over at my accountant's office that afternoon after lunch. And so he asked her his questions, and and he was satisfied with the answers. And so he turned to me and said, "Well, Mike, it's your decision to make." He said, "You know, life's pretty good for you right now." You don't have to show up if you don't want to. You got a nice little business there that runs and operates and you know, if you do something like this, probably a commitment for the next four or five years to really get it up and running and, and be successful. And so, you know, we thanked him and off we went to the airport. And that piece of the story, she basically did a lot of things to try to close me and I wasn't about to close in that moment. And uh, so she had to get on an airplane, thank goodness, and she had a deadline to, to go. And uh, but long and short of it was we circled back we ended up doing the deal we became the 42nd franchisee in the country the first in Arizona um, and we signed right before year end and I had a couple little caveats in my contract but nothing I I was not the great negotiator let's put it that way um, my big thing was historically back then as soon as you signed the contract I don't know you had a few days you know a month or whatever before you started paying minimum dues. I told her, hey, flat out, I can't do that till September. I need to hire someone. I need to get a tech. I need to get a truck. I don't have any of that. And so, you know, they allowed that to happen. So I thought it was a great deal of time. In you know, retrospect, it was like, he didn't ask for anything. That was easy. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, so now I had a Ben Franklin. I didn't have a tech. Um, and so we started down that path to grow that business kind of concurrently with the other business. And that was again, like you say, back in 2003, 2004, I actually started this in September of 2004.
1: And how, um, how big is the new construction business, like when you're making this decision?
0: You know, gosh, 2004, I'm gonna guess we're probably a $12 million business at the time. Okay. Um, somewhere in that neighborhood, I would suspect 10 to 12. And so it was, a nice, like I say, a nice little business. You know, it wasn't lighting anybody's hair on fire. We were doing a good job. Um, we were, in 2000, at that point, we had not gone valley-wide. We were just in the West Valley, so we were very disciplined in, in you know our cost structure. We didn't have trucks running all over the valley. It was very geographically centered or located. Um, and we were doing okay and, and making a few bucks, so we had the ability to do it. What I didn't realize is how hard it would be, to actually, when you don't know anything about that kind of business, <laughs> how different completely different. It is from a new construction.
1: Right. And that's, that's what I wanted to ask you there, Mike. So obviously uh, you're in the new construction world. Uh, but I was a little unclear when you came out of high school and you started working for the gentleman that you eventually bought the business from, was that also all strictly new construction or did you do any retro in that?
0: Uh, I mean, it was hundred percent new construction. We did a little bit of retro on the commercial side, a little yeah. bit of TI stuff. But when it came to residential stuff, the only time I ever walked into a home that somebody lived in was on a warranty call. Okay, so I'd done service warranty, but I'd never sold a penny's worth of product to anybody ever. <laughs> um, retail wise. What I kinda consider. <laughs> so you yeah, I look at that's kinda how I historically and through my entire career have you know, had have a wholesale business that sells to direct to builders. We build a new products, that's a new construction side. And then I had a retail side which was direct to consumer. So you were like,
1: man, it's so much fun working for these general contractors. You know, what would be better (laughs) working for a thousand small general contractors? (laughs) That would be better.
0: (laughs) You know, I I bought into the margins better. And why would you mess with it? I mean, literally for years, people in the franchise system, leadership in the franchise system kept saying, man, when are you going to get out of that new construction and just focus on where the margins at and what the, the real opportunities are? And, you know, I just, my, my answer was very. I mean, I appreciated where they're at. Their hearts were in the right place, but my first love is single-family track housing. I mean, that's how I learned plumbing. That's where I grew up in, and, and it's a. And I understand there's a lot of small contracts, a lot of service contractors that probably started there, and they scratched their head and they said, "Man, how do you get paid? How do you, you know, how do you do those things?" I mean, it's it, because we were doing mostly the track stuff. As long as you do what you're. You know, my response is always, hey, if you do what you say you're going to do, do it on time and high quality, builders love to pay you. If you don't do those things, then, yep, they'll hold your money. Now, you go to a one-off, you go to a custom builder or a little guy that's a very small guy because most of these I was working for were either regional or national builders. Um, some were local, but and those are the tougher ones. Sometimes we didn't get paid. But through my whole career, right up until 2008 when the world crashed, if I did the job and I did what I said I was going to do under contract, I got paid on everything I did. Now, did I do paperwork when I do maybe some work orders and things that we would do? We wouldn't get the paperwork up front. Some builders would mess around with you on that stuff. Absolutely. And I'm, I have no argument for people that say builders don't care about anyone but builders. No argument there. Um, What I found was if you do and build and we'll maybe talk a little bit further into the story about what I ended up building and, why it worked the way it worked was, you know, it foundationally says you do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it and you do it at high quality. Builders love to write you checks because they want you on their jobs before you go to their competitor's job. Right. And so, especially in this kind of environment, but basically, um, the, you know, the commercial, or the, I'm sorry, the one-off or the quote unquote custom builders, that's where I got in trouble. I did get burned several times in that that space. But on a single family track stuff, there was one local builder that when he went out of business, he had two two banks he worked with. One was national, one was local. And in two thousand and eight, when the world you know, when everything hit the fan, I got a phone call from there were two partners in it. And one of the partners called me and said, Mike, I need to make this phone call, but we just got shut down this afternoon. And they owed me at the time about fifty, a little over fifty thousand dollars. And he said, you know, we're going to do everything we can to pay you, but I'm going to be real straightforward with you. You're probably not going to get paid, but our intention is at some point this gets behind us. We restart that we'll, we'll hire you to be our plumber and we'll do everything we can to pay you back that money. And you know, it was the way he approached it. It was a professional move. I thought, and I respected that. Did I like what I heard? Absolutely not. And it's $50,000 a hell of a lot of money, especially in those days. And the size company I was, absolutely. But there was nothing I could do about it because he didn't have the money to pay. Right. Flat out. Uh, The bank shut him down. The national bank shut him down. The local bank wanted to work with him, but they could not, they couldn't swing it on their own. Um, The banking industry, the whole, you know, was in the midst of a meltdown. So the, uh, ultimately, you know, my story about the new residential stuff is that's just, it's what I truly. We were the best at. That's my. You know, I, I'm sure some of my competitors want to argue that, but the outcome kind of speaks for itself. So, anyway, so we're cruising along. 2007 and 8 happened. Thank God I had a Ben Franklin, because at that point I think I had about three, maybe four trucks on the road. And the unique difference between the two models is one is you do the job and you get paid 30 or 45 days later. The other is I do the job, I walk away with the money in my hand. And the critical importance of that was we were able to make payroll, you know, when when the fall of 2008 happened, we cut people, we cut staff, we cut salaries, we did everything we could to survive. And what helped us actually, or what we would not have survived categorically had we not had the cash and carry business there were many weeks where without that cash coming in on a daily basis, we just flat wouldn't have made payroll that week. And so it was critically important to our success and just survival. Um, you know, and we've had our ups and downs. So we made it through 2008, nine, 10 things started coming back. Um, very skinny down company. Um, ben Franklin was doing pretty good. We actually got up to around, I guess probably eight or nine trucks over the years there. Um, and continue to grow that business excuse me um but really with the continuation of growing the new construction business um, again at the time we were a small player in the new construction side of things 2008 really wiped a whole bunch of people out um we came out of that downturn there were probably wow just coming out of it maybe 15 players that were still active in the new construction side. There's a lot of the other smaller guys. When I said there were 40, there were a whole bunch of us small guys and probably eight or 10 big guys that really did the gist of the work. And this um, is across big, Arizona. Yeah. This is across, well, Phoenix market mainly. I really, mainly in the Phoenix market, but yeah. Um, and so in that downturn, as we were coming out the other side, um, those of us that survived, um, most all the big players were out or they were, hampered extremely, really in the downturn. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because my team at the time, so I had, you know, let's talk the leadership team a little bit. Um, I had these different entities because one company we haven't talked about as well. And I think I bought into it in 2007. I had a friend of mine that had a, um, commercial service business and it was actually at the time called Arizona Hydrojet. Um, and it's all they did was hydrojetting. They didn't do any plumbing. They didn't do anything HVAC. Anything. They didn't, frankly, do any service. They just serviced Jeez. restaurants, hotels.
2: They just stuck to where the down. money was, huh?
0: I'm telling you, man. Margin in that <laughs> business was ridiculous. <laughs> it's not bad. Um, but he had so you know you haul around a piece of equipment and you get water and you flush blinds out with water and your overheads, your equipment and your guys that manages the equipment. And so he had three. I think he had three. Three or four jets at the time, and um, in and out Burger. I don't know if you guys have it on the East Coast, the West Coast thing. They were just coming to Phoenix with their first store, and so someone was building the store. They were just opening up, and like any good sales guy, he hit them new, you know, big player coming to town. I'm um, going to grow, grow their local presence. Let's get in early. And so he went and talked to them, and they said, Yeah, we'd love to have you do that for us. You know, we know how important it is to maintain our plumbing lines, sewer lines, open all that. And, uh, we'd love to do that. And so they were literally, he was sitting down to sign the contract and said, by the way, you do plumbing too. Right. And he's like, well, no, actually not. We just do the lines and they laughed and they said, well, you need to figure that out because we don't make two phone calls, plumbing, plumbing to us. And so he called me and said, Hey, got an opportunity. You need to, you know, start doing commercial plumbing and we'll act like we're like one company. And then that way we can do this account. Well, I knew how expensive it was to do a startup, again, what I'll call a retail company. Even though it was B2B, um, you still need to grow a database of customers that you can service. And I really didn't want anything to do with it. So I declined, and he ended up, he did solve that problem for himself. Um, He found two other guys that he said, hey, if I get a call for plumbing, I can call you and you guys will go fix it, right? So basically, they became subcontractors to him um, for that kind of work. So I think fast forward another couple of years and he came to me, so that was probably 2005. Um, hence the pain with trying to grow a database with a Ben Franklin. I was right in the middle of marketing and all that cost of a startup, um, probably spending, hate to say it out loud, 18 to 20% on marketing, um, maybe even more trying to get the phone to ring and not really even understanding how that really worked that well. Um, but nonetheless, was,
2: what, came, which Which, um, yeah. I'm sorry, which department was that you were doing 18% on?
0: Spending 18% on marketing for the Ben Franklin.
2: Just it for might the, even been and that's just a just residential service.
0: service. Just residential service. Again, okay. starting with no, it wasn't a, you know, I was one of the few actual ground up startups back in the day for Ben Franklin. Um, because even though I had the big residential business, I did no service work in it. So we had to get our name out there. Yeah, we had some natural calls come in through that, you know, those people that had come out of warranty, but it wasn't enough to maintain and leave the trucks. And so we were spending a lot of money um trying to get just uh you know, the reason you know, it was so much, it wasn't that much money. It was that much money relative to the top line. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, we were we were still struggling to just create a nice top line. Um, But anyhow, a few years later, he came back to me a couple of years and he said, hey, got a new new thing. And I think you'll jump on board with this. Basically he'd gotten with, it was pre, it was back in the day when restaurants had to actually pay someone to come get their used oil. So before the transition to, Hey, we'll buy that oil from you and use it for fuel. <laughs> so, you know, situation creates opportunity. And so the situation in the day was we need somebody. So we're buying, people are paying us to come get that oil. And we have plumbing needs. So they, he basically was using them to become the servicer for the jetting in the lines that they were, the restaurants they were servicing. So he was kind of becoming a piggyback to their offer. And he said, well, if we're going to do this, then so we need to have plumbing too. And so when he came to me, they had built in 4,000 customers in their database that they serviced every month. The month, over the month. It was a big rendering company here in town. And so he came and brought that to me and I said, you know what? I can get on board with that. So I ended up buying in half the business. Um, So ultimately the three operating entities were, you know, the brewer plumbing is what we referred to, but it's really brewer enterprises, uh, brewer commercial services. So when I bought in, we did a rebrand about that same time and, uh, he rebranded from Arizona Hydrojet to Brewer Commercial Services just to piggyback on all the trucks and the names running around town to look like a bigger company than we really were, and then Benjamin Franklin Plumbing, a brewer company. And um, and so we had those three operating entities, and each of them had their own leadership, their own president, quote unquote. So my partner that I bought into, he ran a commercial business, um, my right-hand guy that you know, the day I started my business, ran the residential business, new construction. And then the Ben Franklin kind of, you know, got referred to as, the you know, redheaded stepchild, not to offend anybody, but kind of had its own little thing going on. And I'd get involved with it. And then we had a GM that was a GM in training, so to speak. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we can fast forward a little bit. We got to coming out the other side of 2009, 10, 11, 12, things starting to pick up and grow. Um, all the business is doing well or doing okay. I'll put it that way. Not lighting anybody's hair on fire. We were in a ton of debt. When we went through the downturn, we took on a, just a immense amount of debt to survive that on the new construction side. These are all individual Ls, um, different LLCs. And so they all had to be accountable to themselves ultimately. But, you know, as we went through, um, I'll fast forward a few years. Um, I had grown a team of kind of unique individuals um, that ultimately became my executive team. Um, My CFO today and through those years um, actually came from the first time I got introduced. I was a quarter million dollars upside down. When the accounting firm, consulting firm came in, he was their guy right out of college that kind of did all the real work they told him what to do and he would get the spreadsheets together and get them over to me and that type thing. And just a young bright guy, really smart guy. Um, he is the CFO. Then I had a, my partner in the new construction or in the commercial business, Tim, he became the sales guy. So basically this executive team came to me and um, said, Hey, we need to, we got a plan. We want to talk to you about how we need to restructure. And what the problem was, was these, each president was kind of in his own silo. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And we had a bunch of really smart guys, but we did, we were just, everybody's kind of on their own. And they gotten to talking between themselves and said, gee, what if we reorganize this thing and become a, an, you know, like a, a leadership team over all the businesses, and then we can all help one another. And so ultimately we ended up with a sales, finance, internal operations and external operations, it's kind of how the, the bubbles you can't you know existed the, the roles that these guys held and then i kind of sat in the middle of the ceo over the top of all of it um so this this conversation actually took place in 2016 um, so we jumped way forward from 2010 to 2016 we grew the business um actually i skipped over one kind of important part i think because of the outcome we were going to talk about in 2008 um so 2006 and seven were downturn. They didn't really affect us because we were so small. 2007, late 2007, 2008, um, people were available. We started growing our business. And so we're now in the spring of 2008 and my team, quote unquote, although we didn't call us a leadership team at the time, we're all sitting in a, one of our meeting rooms. And we said, hey, so 2009, spring of 2009, this thing's going to start coming back. I've been through, I don't know how many of these in the last, at the time, I guess it was close to 25 years. Um, you know, they typically lasted from 18 months to three years. Well, this is next spring will be the end of three years. So the spring selling season, new construction is going to take off. We need to position ourselves for that. And so we started the conversation and I never, I actually didn't recall saying it, but later on I said, you know, I don't know how we ended up becoming the biggest guy and they're like, wait a minute, you don't remember in 2008. So evidently in that meeting. Someone said, well, you know, do we want to be the biggest? And I said, well, I made some comment, something about, you know, well, why couldn't we be the biggest? And we weren't anywhere close to it at the time. Um, we had some very decent competitors. And evidently during that meeting, because they all all remembered it, I just made the comment. It's like, well, why can't we be the biggest? Well, I didn't leave that meeting saying, hey, let's design a company. that is the biggest company in Phoenix or in Arizona. Um, we just said, Hey, we need to be prepared for next spring. And so, you know, we went into specific strategies for next spring, not knowing that in October, 2008, you know, there'd be a big old, basically, a you know, hole get blown in the boat, if you will. The entire industry oversold um, banking meltdown affected everybody in the world. And, but in the U S for sure, not just us subcontractors, unfortunately being a subcontractor in residential plumbing in Phoenix, Arizona in 2008, The fall of 2008 was not a good place to be. And, uh, you know, it kicked our teeth in really, really hard, like I say. So we we survived um, the downturn. We ended up, you know, we had a line of credit with a bank. Um, They came in basically to shoot us, put us out of business, and ultimately convinced them through a third party that we were a good bet. And so they priced us accordingly at nine and a quarter percent for their money. Um, which felt like loan sharp rates when you're already broke. Um, but nonetheless, they gave us the oxygen to breathe. And so we continued to do what we did. And we came out of that and grew out of it, paid them all their money back. We since then has transitioned to a new banker um, and we love our banker, but um, nonetheless, and I guess as an aside, that's an important not to skip over. When you have a great banking relationship, treat it like, it's a great banking relationship. And what I mean by that is not expect them to take the golfing and lunch all the time, but be transparent, be open, be honest with them. For me, that was huge, huge part of my success. And what I found was they want to help you any way they possibly can. And if they don't know you're in trouble, they can't help you. And, you know, when you have the right banker, it's a, a coveted relationship. And so anyway, I'll just leave that as it is, um, but we really enjoyed our relationship with our banker. We actually you know, started with the, I think this particular bank, in a million five. We ended when I did the transaction. We were a three and a half million dollar line of credit for them, and they grew it with us. They extended us credit when, you know, the balance sheet said run. They said we do business with people, not with numbers, um, and they gave us that opportunity. So they were hugely. You know, critically important to our success and growing our business um but anyway backing up let's jump forward to 2016. team came to me said hey let's reconfigure we did that and that's when our quote unquote what i really consider to have a true executive team in place a leadership team kind of gelled into a real formal thing and with that and we'll talk a little bit more about it maybe um became a new way to think about how do I motivate them? How do they get something out of this? How do I keep them long-term without turnover? All the things that as business owners, we just cringe at when one of our key people come in and said, Hey, you know what? It's a tough conversation to have, but I'm going to go someplace else. That is so disruptive to our businesses. It's so expensive to deal with. And so, you know, it's just a, it's a real challenging concern and, what we ended up doing, um, basically, I approached it from the perspective of, hey, this is a team effort, we're all in this together. Um, so with the five of us sitting in a room, we actually went away for a three-day weekend, strategic session. We talked about reorganizing the businesses, reorganizing and, and whose roles are what now, what are those roles. Um, very much like an EOS, um, I guess, just following EOS system. Although we weren't inside that at the time, um,
2: but you did you did get into traction later. EOS,
0: we did a year later. Um, so anyway, was September 16, we talked about things. So basically, what we came to, as we left that weekend, we realized that okay, we got a top five executive team, counting myself. Um, we're all going to be compensated exactly the same. They are going to be compensated on outcomes as well. So the compensation, everybody got a raise, pretty hefty, substantial one. Um, again, we had big plans, big expectations to grow something that was very unique and very, very exciting. And to do that meant it's not a 40 hour a week job, guys. So what's it going to take so you don't have to go home because the wife has to run off to work and the kids are there? Like if you got to, you know, factor in babysitting or a nanny or however you think about that, what's the number it takes for you to be able to be committed and if that means it's 60 hours a week it's 60 hours a week for the next couple of years um and so everybody had a different number i sat back as the owner saying i'm the guy writing these checks and so basically so take uh, all those
2: numbers and cut them in half boys
0: (laughs) (laughs) so they ended up actually i increased everybody's more so than what they did and we literally all came in at at the same number i said we're we're all going to earn the same um we had some additional conversation, and from them they said, okay, well, if we're committing ourselves to you, you know what's in it for us besides that? I said, okay, so what we just said, that's your number. That's never going to change while you work here. That is your base salary and that's always going to be the same. So don't care what the cost of living is, what the market does. It even actually may go down depending on if the market goes completely in the toilet and we're trying to survive again. We got to do what we got to do to survive. But I don't expect that to happen going forward because of who we are today versus who we were in 2008.
2: What year was this again, Mike?
0: That would have been 2016. Okay. And, uh, September, 2016. And so we did that then we also said, and I don't know whether it's worthwhile getting too deep into, I'm not a big fan of equity, like making partners out of people or giving them shares of stock or anything like that. I'm a very firm believer in people need to participate in in the outcomes they produce. Meaning if we're profitable and you are a component to us being profitable, then you should get to partake in that, not just the business owner. Personal opinion, I know people out there listening to this will have their own opinions about it. But when I tell you what that meant to this business, um, I think it becomes very clear that tying people to outcomes is critically important. Um, But basically, so the executive team all got a percentage of what we ended up dubbing earnings before incentives uh, because this now became the incentive. It's effectively a profit share program, but it was based on all free cash that we produced for the year in profits. Um, so it was based on not just free cash flow because on the you know, work and process side, we accumulate a lot of cash. It's what are the profits to come to? So a little bit of uniqueness to it without getting too deep into it, but effectively they all got a piece of the action Without a penny of risk. So if it did go south, if the world went crazy, they didn't risk losing their home, losing any of their lifestyle other than maybe not earning what they were earning before. Um, So I'm just a big believer in you can treat people as though they're owners and you can make commitments to them and they make commitments back. And when we keep our promises, um, it's a great relationship and people do very, very well in that environment. Um, So we're up there for the three days we kind of declared that we went through their whole plan about how they thought about running the businesses. As the owner, I said, you know, we all have, I like to think I'm a pretty humble guy. Um, and so it was not about Mike and it wasn't about my ego and that it wasn't my idea. It was about listening and saying, you know what, I can buy into this and I get it. And frankly, it made it a lot easier because it was their plan not me telling them that that's what they need to do. And so I bought into the plan. We made some, you know, some adjustments to it. Some of it was a fantasy and, uh, you know, just the definition of fantasy. If I can give it one reason why something won't work, it's a fantasy. And right up until you say, yep, out of that, here's a solution. And it's like, okay, now it's a possibility again. Wow. And so we went back <laughs> you, and forth between you wanna, fantasy and possibility.
2: You want to run that back again, Mike?
0: <laughs> sure. So, as a business owner, as anybody, I mean, my kids can come to me and they tell me something, and it's like, well, that's a fantasy. And they're like, no, it's not. And it's like, sure it is. That's humanly impossible to fly. Let's just use that for an example. And they figure out, no, you can get from point A to point B, and maybe flying's not the right right way to think about it. But my team would tell me something, and I would say, well, that here's why it won't work. So it's a fantasy because it can't, can't physically happen in that configuration, let's say. And so they said, yeah, we thought of that. But if we move this one piece, it changes the configuration and now it's possible. And so, okay, great. Now it's a possibility again. So, you know, there's a lot of fantasy thinking going on out there in the marketplace. People saying they can do things that they, you know, they don't have the money to, they don't have the the people to, they don't have the equipment to do, uh, but they all believe that even themselves, like they're kidding themselves. They don't even know they're doing it. Um, so, and again, this is some studying, some business philosophy that I study and, and it became very apparent to me that there's, you, you can name names, Mike, go ahead,
2: call them out. <laughs>
0: well, the, uh, so I'll, I'll give them a plug. It's kind of unique. It's called the Aji network, AJI network. It's a group out of San Francisco and it's about, it's a unique way to think about business philosophy. It's really a life philosophy. Um, frankly, you know, we as Americans, we don't do a very good job. We're marketed to 24 seven nonstop. And um, what we're not doing a good job of is thinking about the day we want to retire and how do we afford to retire and how much money does it take to retire and meeting the real meaning of that is what do I need to do today for my current lifestyle? Because we all tend to, kind of earn into, as we earn more, we spend more instead of saying, Hey, I have a nice lifestyle and now I earn an extra 50 K a year. I'm going to put that 50 K away for the day I retire. Um, Part of Mike's own thinking about that is the word retirement. That is a a really nice way of saying you're unemployed because Hmm. you're not working anymore. Right. Typically it happens when you're unemployable, you're too old to work. And so people, when they think about retirement, they tend to, I'm guilty of it until I started, I guess, studying this 15 years ago was that, you know, I'm working hard. I'll take care of that when it gets here kind of thing. It's something I'll worry about later. And the problem is every day that goes by, you lose that day to take care of that. And so, you know, especially young listeners out there, if nothing else, take the heart, go do the math and figure out what's it cost for you to retire. I'll give you the simple back of the back of the envelope, you know, bar and half conversion. Most of us retire around, we hope to retire around 62 or 65. Chances are you're going to live another 25 years after that. Today's world, medical breakthroughs, all those kinds of things. And maybe that's even low. But just simply, I mean, it's not even me trying to convince anybody. Let's just use around numbers. If you live on $100,000 today, and you spend $100,000 today, how much money do you need the day you retire to be able to afford your life, the rest of your life?
1: Uh, simple math that. would be yeah, $2 million.
0: $2.5 million. Yeah, okay. $2.5 yep. $2. million. So $100,000 a year. Well, there's a darn thing called inflation. And so $2.5 really doesn't get you another 25 years because inflation eats, the, eats that crap up fast. So... You know, again, forget inflation, forget everything. Just let's just settle on, let's see. I'm 65. I need two and a half million dollars in the bank, and today I have. Let's say I'm doing pretty good, and I have two hundred thousand. In the next, let's say you're 40. In the next 25 years, how are you going to? And you're. Oh, by the way, you're earning. I'm just using round numbers, whatever they are. But you're earning a hundred thousand today, and your lifestyle's at a hundred thousand. So it's not the day you retire. You're not going to be a hundred thousand where's the extra money going to come from if you're living on everything you're in today. So anyway, I don't want to get too deep into that. And uh, if you want to check it out, it's a whole new offer. Now they're online. You can go look at that. Um, yeah. I can send you some links wherever you guys post this. Uh, but it's just, I think it's aji.com, AJI.com. Um, and it's just a unique way to think about life, about business, and about taking care of your family is really what it comes down to. So nonetheless, um, everybody's aligned. We're up there three-day weekend. Uh, got my executive team in place. We've got our compensation structure in place, which, by the way, added a whole bunch of new overheads. And I called them out on and said, you know, you do realize this plan has to work because we just added a whole bunch of new overheads to a business that... And I'll, I'll give you the current state of the business at the time. It was about a $32 million business. And our bottom line... Net net profit, I think that prior year was not even a decent new construction company um, percentage, but around it, maybe down just a hair and say 2% to the bottom line. And that's an immense amount of risk, that much revenue to get that kind of return. And so the new plan was not that. It was to grow a very large EBITDA company that was Repeatable, and again, that's where this fantasy conversation comes in. When they first told me, you know, I, I laughingly said, "What are you guys smoking?" Because the number they wanted to get to repeatedly, uh, build a company that could, you know, duplicate it year over year, uh, because the way we built it was basically insane relative to where we were at that time. Um, so we had some, you know, we had some conversation around it, and, but we realized day three of the meeting was, we need more help. The five of us. Can't do
1: this by ourselves. Hey, that's where we're going to call it a pause for this two parter. And I know we're kind of right in the middle of our conversation with Mike, and he has so much more to share, but you're going to have to wait till next week. We hope that you enjoyed the things that you've already uh, listened to today. And Mike has brought so much content already as we continue to dive into his story and hearing where he's come from and where he is going. And one of the things that I just want to reflect upon there is that it is possible. The Trades is one of those organizations that can allow you to go from a one-man, two-man operation to multi-million dollar operation to literally the largest plumbing company in a state. And Mike is literally detailing out the trajectory of how he got there and all the things that he learned along the way. It's been a great episode so far, but we're going to pause here and challenge you to listen to this one again, as well as stay tuned for the next one. And of course, always be focusing on how you too can follow in the same footsteps as Mike. Maybe it's not starting your own company, but maybe it is growing up through the same ladders and opportunities that he took advantage of through the trades. And as always, we want to challenge you to be improving yourself in doing that by choosing to wake up every single morning and waste no day.